0: Hello, everyone. I'm Keri Vogeljee-Sang, your host of the Educator Wellness Podcast, here to share and promote my life's work and passion, all things wellness. But not just any wellness, we're here to discuss wellness specifically as it pertains to educators. I am a former elementary school teacher, and I am passionate about helping educators see wellness in a very different way. This podcast is dedicated to educators across the globe, creating a space for us to come together in an authentic and therapeutic way, sharing our stories, our hopes, our joys, our fears, our sor- sorrows, and hopefully creating some space to share some laughter with one another as well, In um, our journey to learn how to support one another to prioritize wellness and enhance our overall well-being. Please join me as we talk with nationally recognized experts to guide us, on a transformative journey of self-discovery helping us to embrace and weave all dimensions of wellness into the fabric of both our personal and professional lives. Also please note that the opinions and perspectives that are shared on this podcast do not necessarily represent those at the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health or the University of Iowa. Today we hear from special guests Jeff Johnson and Drew Martell. Jeff Johnson founded his own nonprofit in 2020 called Choices Network. This nonprofit is dedicated to educating kids, parents, teachers, and coaches on the importance of making positive choices. That same year in 2020, he wrote his first book, This One's For You, an inspirational journey through addiction, death, and meaning. He also started the Living Undeterred Project, which aims to build a network of contacts and resources to help develop alternative solutions to the mental health and addiction crisis. Drew Martell is the Director of Crisis Services at Foundation 2 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where he oversees the crisis line, Your Life, Iowa, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and Mobile Crisis Outreach Programming. Drew is also a site surveyor for the American Association on Suicidology and provides therapy at Meadowlark Psychiatric Services. In this episode, We talk about the effects that substance use and abuse have on the brains and bodies of children, adolescents, and adults. We talk about how substance abuse affects our relationships, families, and our communities, which of course includes our school communities. Difficult questions are asked and powerful stories are shared. Please know that some of the information and stories shared today may not be suitable for young children and could trigger intense and uncomfortable feelings for certain listeners. I encourage you to listen in a safe and comfortable environment and think through the various supports you have access to if needed. Please join me as we learn more about the substance abuse challenges that are taking place in our very own communities. Good morning, Jeff. How are you?
1: I am doing wonderful. Um, I have been chasing a fly for an hour down here, and finally I got him like five minutes ago. So I've been doing this all morning. But anyway, I'm good. I got my coffee, and I really am excited to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for joining us. I'm also very excited to have this conversation. I know it's a conversation that can be uncomfortable sometimes, but it's definitely one that we need um, to have. So... um, Welcome, everyone. Um, as we mentioned in the opening, we are going to be talking about substance abuse, particularly substance abuse um, with teachers and with students in our schools and how substance abuse in the family can impact students in schools and then how that impacts school communities. So we're going to we have a lot to kind of unpack and and to, t- and to talk about today. Jeff has done so much work in this area. Um for many years now. And, um, his story is one of the most powerful stories I've heard in a long time. Um, I met Jeff last year and I actually was a guest on his podcast. Yes. So let's just go ahead and get started Jeff with some of it's some of what we want to talk. We, that we've talked about talking Yeah, about this show. <laughs>
1: and I feel like, I feel like this conversation, um, uh, we've, we've had Plenty of talks about this, and I'm excited to see where it goes today. But no, I'm I'm honored to be here. Um, You know, my story, unfortunately, as painful as it is to share and for people to probably listen to, it's not uncommon. Uh, I just today saw a post of a high school wrestling star that actually is from California, and he committed to Luther here in Iowa, but he overdosed. He died fentanyl poisoning. I don't know how old he was, but he was in high school it just seems like you know every day it's another death another story another person that loses the fight with um whether it's you know substance abuse addiction suicide and it's like you know we got to draw a line in the sand somebody's got to take a stand somebody somebody we can't do this alone you know that um it's it's all hands on deck and so yeah uh in my situation you know i went um pretty unscathed most of my life until about age 50 and at that point you know Looking back now, I didn't know how good I had it. Uh, fifty years old, happily married to my wife Prudence, three kids. You know, kind of at that point where I felt good. I've worked hard my whole life, and this is kind of where I can start kind of winding things down. And little did I know that
0: mm-hmm.
1: things wound up pretty quick.
0: Yeah, can you tell me? So this is something I don't think we really have talked a lot about in terms of you know you you kind of start your story at age fifty, but and you say you know up to age fifty you really. Who are unscathed? Like, mm-hmm. do you mean like unscathed in terms of you really hadn't had much experience in your family or yourself with, mm-hmm. with addiction or with substance abuse issues in the home or personally or with a family member?
1: Yeah. Uh, unscathed, I would say from a standpoint of trauma um, and grief. You know, I mean, we had grandparents pass away and pets pass away, but I never had anything really close get taken from me. And so, um, but when it did happen, it, exposed a lot of personal demons that I had that I wasn't aware of Sure, alcoholism since high school. So I've been a 33 year alcoholic. And when I say alcoholic, I'm, I'm self-assessing. I'd never been clinically diagnosed, but I knew I had a problem, uh, five, six days a week, social drinker, you know, uh, never really had situations where I blacked out or anything like that, but it never really impeded my work because I own my own company. So
2: <laughs>
1: I didn't have to phone in and tell the boss I'm hung over. I just didn't go to work. So, and that, that adds to the problem. If, if you, it's, it's almost self-enabling by being an entrepreneur, you, you almost self-enable because there, I didn't have the guardrails, you know, someone mm-hmm. couldn't call me and say, Hey, come to work. You know, I just said, I didn't, don't want to go. So, and then I had a gambling addiction for about 20 years as well. And as a owner of an investment firm, premier investments of Iowa, which I just left, I just sold a month, or two ago. Oh wow. Um, yes. yeah, I just, my heart's not in it. Uh, my heart's in kids, my heart's with young adults, a Gen Z, yes. it's not with making money anymore. And that's, that's something that took a long time for me to be humbled through death. You know, that there was more, more important things in my life than the pursuit of, you know, success and fame and those type of things. So, uh, anyway, um, so, you know, I had those, I had those two underlying addictions, you know, alcoholism and, and gambling that, that I think especially the gambling doesn't get talked about today. I think I saw a statistic and maybe you know this better, Dr. Carey. like 6% of college students have a serious gambling problem and the majority of them are young men.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, every once in a while we'll get information like from our, um, Student Services group mm-hmm. here on campus, and every once in a while, I'll see it'll be something on gambling, and mm-hmm. especially obviously during like football season and basketball season, these things come yeah. up. But um, you know, it's a it's it's something that we don't talk about. There's lots of shame about this. I think that makes us not it with any addiction that makes us not want to talk about it, and um, and so that's I guess one of the reasons why we're here today, right? Like yeah, on can... those walls.
1: I think one of the biggest challenges we have as uh, advocates for improving the lives of people is this um, sense of uh, helplessness because it's really a big game of whack-a-mole. It's like, you know, you've got one area. Like I'm a compulsive gambler, so I f- I fix that, and then it seems like something else pops up. Now I'm now I'm you know more anxious or more depressed. Now I'm drinking more. Now I'm overweight. I'm not going to the gym. I'm watching more toxic things on TV. And so now, okay, now I go to the gym and lose 40 pounds. Well, now I can't make my car payment because I don't have a good job and I spend my money on stupid things. So my relationship with money's poor. These things all permeate within each other um, and from each other. And that's the challenge is, you know, we it's so easy for us as advocates, Dr. Kerry, to see something and go at it, try to eradicate it. Like mm-hmm. I did early in my journey with fentanyl. And then you realize that, you know, even if I did that, it's not going to fix the underlying problem of increasing the lives of young adults and, and giving them a sense of purpose. So when their feet hit the bed in the morning, they go, wow, I'm really happy to have this opportunity. I'm honored mm-hmm. to be alive today. They don't have that spark. And that, that again, that carries over with educators. You know, these large groups of kids are coming to school already in a very poor place mentally. That has to weigh on, on has to weigh on the teachers and the, and the faculty and you know, all the way down to the janitor it's got to you got to feel that culture in the school when you that sense of heaviness when people aren 't happy
0: oh it it is definitely felt you know one of the things we 're working really hard on right now um, through the PDRM of the Scanlon center and that has just become um, such a crisis is school avoidance and chronic Mm -hmm. absenteeism. Mm. And, you know, there's multiple reason why kids aren't coming to school and um, but they're not. And actually it's not just our community. It's not just the state of Iowa. It's not just actually our country. It's global. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been doing some work over in Finland and in Norway and countries that we have oftentimes looked to and thought of as like the countries that have education figured out, right? Which Mm -hmm. um, of course there's, that's problematic in and of itself, but they're even saying the same thing. You know, we have serious, serious attendance issues because Mm -hmm. going back Jeff, to what you were just talking about and what we've talked about in the past, in past previous conversations between the two of us, the purpose just doesn't seem to be there. Feeling of, you know, when we try, when we talk about wellness in the Scanlon Center, we do talk about holistic wellness, like these eight dimensions of wellness. Yeah. Financial wellness, occupational wellness, physical wellness, and emotional wellness. And um, one of those is spiritual wellness, and that has to do, it's not tied to a religion. Yeah. But, but, but you're Right. And that is a piece when we do this work that just seems to be lost.
1: People yeah
0: can't seem to align pers- or even identify personal values right yeah. now. And yeah, it's a it's an area that we need to start talking about and figuring out.
1: Well, you got my mind spinning. I've got like a number of different areas I wanted to take from what you said and uh, highlight it. But one thing that comes to mind that I heard someone say a while ago that just really, I mean, literally just shook me is... Education is far easier than action. And I think one of the things we have with our system is it's so predicated on education. um, And we need to build the systems to get people in action. Education is great. And the best example I can tell you is this. We know more today than we've ever known in the history of humanity about healthy eating. Everything you put in your mouth has a label on it. Saturated fats, carbohydrates, calories, everything. Now sugar content's a big thing. Yet in the last 30 years, we've become the heaviest industrial country in the world and we're getting bigger, but we know more. So there's a massive disconnect between do we need another label on a candy bar? Mm -hmm. Do we need another podcast, another book about how to lose weight? Or do we have to go back to prevention, less Mm -hmm. treatment, and focus on changing behavior or if anything, intervening before the intervention? So I think the I think the answer to, to this problem that we have that's just you know set up for decades ahead of us, if not centuries, if we don't make changes, especially with Gen Z, is to take a sixty second time span and give and give us sixty six days because that's what it takes to change behavior. And we're oh, dealing yeah. with we're dealing with a generation that has sixty second time spans, and yeah. we know we know through behavior modification and all the different methods out there that now it says and based on research I saw. It takes about sixty-six days to change behavior, so we could have a pep rally at a school, bring in a motivational speaker, talk to kids. That's great. I highly doubt it's changing behavior, though.
2: Yeah. Maybe if
1: it does one, that's I'm all for it. I'm not telling. I'm not telling advocates that we need less. I'm saying we need more of other things. It's not a zero sum game. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: If if we invent apps and we invent systems and processes that can change behavior, it doesn't mean we're we're lessening the impact of motivational speakers and people that go to schools and put on these tremendous assemblies. We still need that, but I don't think that is how we get out of this problem. I think it's a combination of that and more things that we can talk in a little bit.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. So let's go back a little bit. So if you're at your age 50, yeah, what, what happens?
1: Well, I'm sitting there pat myself on the back, how great I've done everything and, you know, ignoring a lot of my problems that were brewing in my family and, um, Seth was 23, Ian was, uh, 15 and Roman was 13, three boys. Uh, my, my wife was, you know, we had a great, I mean, everything was great. And then like it does to every single one of us at some point, hundred percent probability. It's mm-hmm. just, it's not, it's not if it's when, mm-hmm. uh, I get the call at six 30 in the morning on October 4, 2016. And my life changed. Uh, part of me died, but part of me was born. I have to look at it that way. Um, they found our oldest son, Seth, overdosed, poisoned by fentanyl up in Waterloo, Iowa, uh, as the end of a six year, horrific, horrendous, painful journey of watching my son self-destruct. And there's not a damn thing I could do about it. Um, I have no regrets in my efforts to try to help Seth, but I have regrets in what I know now about Adderall, what I know now about prescriptions, what I know now about listening. Um, I could have been a better dad in hindsight. So I can't, I can't be that for him in life. I can now in death, but what can we do to help the kids? So nobody has to go through what I went through again. It's not just about trying to avoid the pain that I went through. How about Seth's pain? Yeah. I mean, how about, how about Seth? I mean, I don't care about me. I really don't. I mean, I've been through a lot. I've, I'm pretty resilient. Um, I know I have my coping mechanisms, but what about Seth? He would have been, he'd been 29 this year, Wow. you know, and when he died, uh, his, Three weeks later, his beautiful daughter was born, and that's um, her name is Brighton. That's Aww. the name of um, our project is named after my granddaughter. But it's like, you know, this didn't have to happen, Doctor Carey. This was preventable, yet it was predictable, mm-hmm. and so that happened. And um, immediately, you know, I went into uh, protection mode. You know, as stereotypical man of the family, it's like, okay, one man down. I got to, I got to write this ship. I got to get my family back. I felt that obligation as a, as a male, uh, whether that's a, you know, not appropriate to say today, I don't really care. No, it's, um,
0: it's what you felt. That's
1: it's, how I grew up.
0: That's, I grew and, up. and that yeah. was part of your story and your, right. and your feeling in it.
1: Right. Right. And so I thought, okay, I need to say something to the boys. So the day Seth died, my, my wife's over to my right. My two boys are on the left and I just presented this as an opportunity for them. And I just said, boys, you know, and it became a chapter in my book. And it's really kind of formed this mindset of what I call better, not bitter. You know, the better road versus the bitter road. Mm-hmm. And um, I said to the boys, I said, you know, boys, we have one of two roads to go down. We have one road of anger, despair, and hatred. We... I was trying to trying to think about this because I know I've explained this to you a few times and I was gonna apologize for having to explain this and it threw me off track. No, 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 we got one road of anger, despair and hatred and we can become alcoholics and addicts ourselves or we have a road of inspiration and motivation and this can be the single greatest moment in our lives and others around us to make a difference. Okay. I'm on the second road, to ask you to join me. So it was important for me to present this to my two boys who were only 13 and 15 at this time at the moment of telling them their brother died, pivot quickly. Mm -hmm. Hey guys, you know what? We got to, we got to pull our pants up, pull our boots up. We got to go to work. We got to, we got to make sure this doesn't become the defining moment negatively in our lives.
0: How did they respond to that? Were they, did they, did they, were they on board right away? Yeah,
1: they both did great. Um, Ian went on to do some amazing things with golf that today still just resonates throughout, throughout the world. He was named as the Young Iowan Philanthropist Philanthropist of the Year. Um, he got the Jerry Cole Sportsmanship Award, which is given to one golfer in the world for fundraising activities. And so Ian and Roman really both leaned into it heavily, but um, I didn't. And I called my employees up and, I, and my business partner, I said, hey, Brock, I'm not coming to work for a year. I need to work on a lot of things. I need to work my wife and I need to fix a lot of things. And we didn't, we just sat home and drank, um, for 14 months. I got drunk seven days a week, um, ballooned up to probably close to 190 pounds, uh, just, you know, called everybody in my head that I could find that was negative and through a big pity party. And mm-hmm. I watched my wife, this beautiful person just slowly deteriorate just in front of my eyes. Mm-hmm. It's like watching a train wreck of your family members and you're a hundred feet from the cliff and your feet are stuck in cement and the train is just going and you can't do anything right. about it. And, um, and I, and then on, on December 24th of 17, so a year a year and a half after Seth died, that was that 14 months. I decided to quit drinking and my life changed immediately.
0: Okay. But now stop. Yeah, this is the this this is actually the question. Mm -hmm. Because when I do wellness work, like this is the question that everybody has. But like, you know, they've created some really poor habits in their life. They know that, like, they're aware of it, right? right? They, you know, they try to to change and to pivot. What can you, was there a moment? Was there a time? Was there something that happened or a switch? Do you remember what happened to make you be like, I'm done?
1: I, I, I remember two things. The night we had a condo in Florida that we bought to help with my son's uh, golf uh, career. And we were, we drunk one night. And so December 23rd, uh, my wife and I, and a and, uh, couple of people got really drunk and I just remember sitting on the couch watching my wife go back and forth from the kitchen to the bedroom, filling up her glass of wine. And I just thought to myself, man, I am the worst husband on the planet if I, if I allow this to happen again under my watch. And that morning I got up and looked in my mirror and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to join my son pretty quickly here, you know, either ending my life or drinking myself to death if I don't make changes. So, and I noticed my wife too was just, I mean, she, she went from, she was nine years younger than me. So she was 46 when she died. But anyway, I went from looking at someone who was so vibrant to looking at someone who looked 70 years old mm-hmm. and I quit, and you know, this isn't being narcissistic, but I quit to help her first. Mm-hmm. But I realized quickly, Dr. Kerry, that a week after drinking, my life got better. I slept better. My stomach was better. Um, my eyes looked better. My conversations were better. My memory was better. And then it turned into, you know, six months to a year. And then it it pivoted from wanting to help her to realizing I can't, but I can help me. Mm -hmm. And I put the focus on self-care and I haven't drank since. And um, on January 20, or sorry, June 29th of 21, the day after Romans, my youngest son's 18th Mm -hmm. birthday, they found my wife dead of alcoholism at the age of 46. So you know, now here comes death into my life as an opportunity to be better, not bitter. So, and it won't stop. Death will take more people I care about. It may take me. But I think one thing we can do in hindsight, looking at this as kind of the whole package, is how do we introduce the concept of death to young kids Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. part of life Mm -hmm. instead of the way we sugarcoat it and create myths and fairy tales. and, And then when kids really find out the truth, Mm-hmm. They're either terrified or they try to numb it with alcohol and drugs. And I think we need to, as adults, stop telling kids lies. We don't tell them everything, but we need to let them have the data to make the informed decisions, to make self-assessment an easier process in their mental health uh, um, relationship.
0: I, I That's one of the conversations I wanted to have with you because – you know, I I hear when when this topic comes up in the world of schools and curriculum and programs that have been a complete failure, and programs that you know are starting to try to you know take off, and they do have a little bit of evidence to support um, kind of the you know we know we all know about the DARE program. There's evidence yeah. that we support that people who implemented the DARE program they ended up having more issues with mm-hmm. substance abuse.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so so like. I this this is the thing about this particular topic where I am so sick of people using scare tactics. Number mm-hmm. one, just scaring the shit out of out of kids because that doesn't work. It
1: doesn't work.
0: It, no. it, especially when they go home at night and they see their parents smoking a joint in the backyard yep. and, and, you know, drinking every single night, then they're like, this is a bunch of crap. Yep. But then I also, you know, now we're living in this world, especially with weed where we're like, it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that it's a big deal. We it is for know, that.
1: For the, it, yep.
0: We, we know what, <laughs> what these substances can do to the brains and bodies of children when their brains are developing and when, um, you know, they're, they're trying to learn strategies to cope with really strong emotions, they're trying mm-hmm. to learn how to self-regulate, and if they're constantly going to a substance to numb themselves or to take them to a different place, and they're ne- never able to mm-hmm. really fine-tune those skills and those strategies, there are really long-term negative effects,
1: Yeah, especially with with can't with marijuana. Um, you know, again, all these substances impact people differently, and the 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 problem is is with that generation, Generation Z specifically, and now Alpha coming up behind it Mm -hmm. is the prefrontal cortex, which you know you you know much more about that than than I'll ever know, and but we know it's involved with decision making and social behavior and planning and rationalizing and the things that these young kids are having problems with without the introduction of cannabis.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and that just, that just makes it more difficult. So yeah, I think, um, you know, from, for us when we started looking at ways to fix this problem or to, or to add an arrow to the quiver, as I like to say, we wanted to talk to teachers. We wanted to figure out, you know, I'm not a teacher, I'm a dad, you know, business owner and a dad, but I'd like to hear from, the teacher. So we did Cedar Rapids Prairie here. We did a pilot uh, program. I I made some presentations about our app coming out and things like that, but we were, we were primarily there to get data like, Mm -hmm. like you guys are doing, you know, how do we build an app that can change behavior, engage kids, um, you know, without the appropriate data well, you can't. So, but some of the stuff we got from the teachers was, I mean, it was like, I think 52% of the teachers that we surveyed, Which, which granted, was a pretty small sample, but I think you would probably feel this is probably indicative. 52% of them do not want to have conversations about mental health with their students. And the number of reasons, um, I was just looking at a a couple of the answers here. I'm afraid I'm not qualified to address some of these serious issues. I don't have a lot of experience with substance abuse and a suicide. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I'm not comfortable at, at all. Um, not comfortable due to lack of training with the class of 25 students we take care of. Um, I feel comfortable talking to students, but I don't feel I know the best resources to support them. So it's like, and the frustration is kids are coming to school now, probably before they even get their foot on campus, probably in the worst mental health place they've ever been in history. And we know now that based on our small pilot test, is that half the teachers there feel ill-equipped. They don't feel confident. They feel like they're going to trigger it, say the wrong thing, maybe get blamed, maybe lose their job for trying to help. So it's just a cesspool of just a a big problem we have. And I know you're working on solutions. I am too. A lot of people out there are, and I don't think there's one solution. I I don't. And because there's not one problem, you know, it's, I think overall theme like I said, how do we get kids when their feet hit the ground in the morning to have meaning and purpose, to have a healthy relationship with money and to be in the best health
2: mm-hmm. to,
1: to live the marathon of life, you know, yeah. body, diet, exercise, things like that, yoga, meditation. How do you do all that? I don't know. I'm working on it. So are you and so are a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I think that i, I really appreciate. This is the thing that I really appreciate about appreciate about having you know conversations with you, Jeff, is that you really do understand and see the complexity of this and how there are so many factors that are playing into this crisis. You know, mm-hmm. from social media to diet to movement to people feeling to to COVID to people mm. feeling ill prepared to have these conversations. Yeah. Um, You know, then increase of substance abuse in the home with educators. We know that educators are reporting increased substance abuse issues that they're struggling with. It's It really is having to come to my office every morning and you do the same thing and think, try to step, take a step back and look at this, look at all of these factors that are playing into this and trying to position people in ways where we can start to address each of those situations and each of those factors. But it, it, it is it is a complex societal problem that no one person is going to heal.
1: You're right. And I'm, I'm looking off the corner of my eye here at the survey because I keep reading this thinking, yeah, I want to read this. I'm going to read this one quote that this teacher, seventh grade teacher gave us out at Prairie. I would like to have something. So we're asking about mental health curriculum. I would like to have something that can be integrated daily and makes mental health routine like math or science. Could be at home room or you could could be at homeroom or utilized by students throughout the day. That's what teachers are telling us. So it's like, here, here's the here's the really good news though, Dr. Carey. Gen Z is the first generation of all time to have mental health, their number one New Year's resolution. Yeah. 30, 37% increase in Gen Zers seeking mental health treatment. Okay, let's look at that first subset. They're asking for help and they're getting help.
0: Yeah, they are.
1: But the problem is the numbers aren't maybe there's a lag time between help and and the, and the numbers improving i'm not sure but every time i see statistics on pretty much everything to do with gen z mental health it's worse than it was 5 10 years ago yeah you have to really look deep to find something that isn't so they're they're telling us they have a problem they're going to get help what's out there isn't working teachers are telling us they're not equipped it's like okay somebody's got to start building these processes that that students and teachers can start using at least then they can focus on why they're there, teaching yeah. kids the basics, and kids are focused on learning instead of being distracted.
0: I, to- I I 100% agree with you. I do like where you started that. I so I think what you said is really important. Okay, so like the good news, right, is mm-hmm. that there's an awareness. Yeah. <laughs> At least there's that.
1: Yeah, and they're open.
0: <laughs> and they're open. Yep. Um, the you know, the but you are right. You know, in some areas we know that, you know, there are in our more urban areas, there are more mental health providers. There's still oftentimes a wait list, but yeah. there are more providers, there are different avenues and different ways of getting services to to students and to, to kids and to teachers. In our rural communities, yeah, it's rough. Yeah. I mean, they might have to drive hours to to, uh, reach a service provider. And even when that, even if, even if they are able to do that, oftentimes they're on a wait list for six, Mm -hmm. seven, eight, nine months. Mm -hmm. That's really, really, that's super challenging, but okay. So, so let's, let's go back to your story for, for a minute. So, so you, so you were in Florida and you were watching your wife and you, you know, you had, yeah. like, man, this has got to change right. you up. You stopped drinking when you stopped drinking. So I, I basically, um, I'm still a drinker, yeah. but I'm ta- I used to be a drinker in terms of like probably three or four nights a week. I would yeah. drink one or two glasses of wine. Yeah. And so, so I'm, I'm going with, I, I I promise I'm going to get to your story through my story. No, no, no. I,
1: I, I'd rather hear more about your story than Uh, I hear mine all the time.
0: (laughs) So, so I kind of did the same thing and it was actually around COVID and I was like, I don't like the way this makes me feel. Yeah. I have a hard, I, 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 I was still exercising every day. I was having a hard time keeping track of things. I was having a hard time exercising. Yep. Um, I was tired. I was more tired than, than I thought I had been in previous years. So I stopped drinking and I stopped Mm -hmm. drinking, basically didn't have a drink at all for almost a year. Right. I will order a drink sometimes in social situations, which Mm -hmm. I think this is messed up that I do this, by the way, (laughs) Um, but I'm working on it because I, everybody else has ordered a drink.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so
0: I will order one and I will drink like half of it. If, if even that, yeah. which why do I do that? Like that is, well,
1: it's not, it's not abnormal. That's actually very normal. There's actually people that will go up to the bar and say, Hey, pour my Coke and, Make it look like there's rum in it, but don't yes. put rum in it. But and again, that's pro- that's progress. That's progress. Yeah. And in the, in the recovery space, one foot, two foot forward, and you limit your steps back. That's progress because it really, literally, is one day at a time. And I think the fact you're cognizant of it and you're making an effort, I'm. That's all great. Um, I'll take half a beer, one beer over five.
0: Right. You know? Of course. Yeah. And abstinence
1: isn't always the recovery path for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I don't think abstinence equals recovery. I- I'm convinced of that. I know in my heart I could sit down and have a glass of wine and I wouldn't become an alcoholic. I know that. Um, I'm, 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 I'm for me, I'm just too disciplined. Um, but it's so easy now not to drink. It's
0: just much better.
1: Yeah. And someone, well, said, well, for me. someone said, well, Jeff, you know, uh, I, I run in sometimes occasionally with the really heavy 12 step advocates and I, I love them to death, but, it's almost like running into very strong religious people. It's like, they really think that their way is the only way and that there's no other option. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, my 12 steps is when I park my car and it takes me 12 steps to get to the gravesite of my son and my wife.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: my 12 steps. Mm-hmm. That's all I need. So you find your own thing that makes you yes. do what you need to do. And I'm all for it. So if it's half a beer, hallelujah, hallelujah. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you. If it's one beer and you're used to doing three, that's better. If it's zero, that's better what whatever works for you
0: it's it is you know drinking is such an interesting thing it's it's just such a huge part of people's social lives that I have a friend who um who's single and she dates, mm-hmm. and like she literally said to me one time, well, he seemed interesting, but like on his profile it said that he was sober that he didn't drink, so I don't think that would work and I was like, hmm, I thought that was so. Uh, I thought it was so interesting. And then I did, I actually looked at it. I was like, well, you're friends with me and I'm sober.
2: <laughs>
0: like what?
1: <laughs> no, I, I I I can respect that mindset. I really can. Um, I think sober is becoming sexy today. I think it's becoming cool. I think for men to, and I'm, again, I'm, I only have a man's lens, so I can't speak for all women, but I think for men and you're in an environment and there's impressionable young men, maybe in their thirties or forties and they're at a rotary thing and you order an NA or a glass of water. I, it used to be you kind of hid behind that, like you were talking about. You know, yeah. you're still kind of stuck in that. I, I, I think there's something about now. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the cool club. And my, well, I had a teenager on our Gen Z board. I've I've three board members on our Gen Z board, and they're like, you know, now it's kind of the cool club. It used to be in high school when I was in high school, in the or as my kids will say, in the Civil War. <laughs> dad, you invented the wheel and fire. But when I was in high school, you know, kids would sit outside and smoke pot and, 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 and there was kind of a perception that was kind of the cool club, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, not me cause I was an athlete. So I always looked at them as kind of the potheads, but, mm-hmm. um, and, but now it's like, you know, not drinking is kind of the cool thing. It really is. I mean, yeah. uh, Rob Lowe, um, all these actors are putting out the Elton John's been sober for a long time. Jason Alice Cooper, Babin. Yeah. Jason Bateman, Alice Cooper, mm-hmm. um, So, I think there's something coming back. And if you go to the high V's here in Iowa, man, they are the best. I I want my kudos to all the high V's, especially the ones in Cedar Rapids. They have the best non alcoholic choices. The only thing I'd like to see is move it to a whole separate area so you don't trigger the people in there trying their darndest. That's a good idea. You know, because they go in there and then there's Corona right next to the Corona Light or the NA's and they're like, You know, it's just that's one more opportunity that person that's done a really good job staying sober grabs that six pack. You know, it's like, "Ah, come on, Ivy, we we can do better. I'm not criticizing you, but we can move that so those people aren't tempted.
0: That's a really good idea. Well, maybe somebody will hear this and they'll take your suggestion. I heard
1: that from somebody actually who's struggling immensely. And they said, I love going to Ivy and Bayonnais, but I can't go in the freezer anymore because I get too tempted. And I'm like, okay, Ivy needs to know that.
0: Yeah. Uh, my brother is, um, he's been sober now for, he, uh, a little over a year mm-hmm. and, um, you know, he struggled with it ever since he was a teenager. He's fifty years old mm-hmm. and he he's doing such a great job. We're also very, very proud of him. Mm-hmm. But I know he does do the NA thing. So I wonder where he um if he goes to high V. I'll have to ask him about that and see. But anyway.
1: You know, for any teacher out there, anybody, you know, educator out there that that's trying to do the best at their their job and their passion. You know, and you're struggling with with um alcoholism. Uh, you know, COVID, 67% increase in alcohol sales during COVID. So, you know, the fact you were doing your thing during COVID just shows how focused you are on it. And I, I admire that. Um, you know, and it's um for the teachers out there again, like I said, that are that are struggling, and I I know a lot of them. I I have a lot of them come up to me after workshops we do, and I'm sure you guys do too. You know, so, Jeff, I don't talk about this, but you know, I I drink more than I should. They don't say they're an alcoholic because they're struggling with you know, self-diagnosis, uh, especially with the stigma that goes with being an alcoholic educator, you know, absolutely alcoholic, anything, I doesn't have to be an educator, but that stigma there, you know, I I think, I think the fact that we are having these conversations, you're having a podcast, we're having this conversation. You've been vulnerable to share your story. Uh, I'm obviously very vulnerable sharing my story. The more we can get, you know, teachers to share their stories, to maybe meet, uh, for lunch together, have their own like little, little group where they can provide support for each other. You know, you don't have to go to an AA meeting to have community. You can start one yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, At Cedar Rapids Prairie, there's a group called green bandana that I'm, I'm, I'm finding a lot more about 60 kids at Prairie that just decided to form mental health uh, advocacy group. And that's just like freaking beautiful. That's like, we can do it as teachers can do it too. They can form their own group. They don't have to wait for someone to come in and tell them what to do. Um, Yeah.
0: This, this is something that I think is really important. I mean, Harvard, you know, published this long study that they've had about social interaction and happiness and how important it is to have social groups and social connection and feeling of belonging and meeting with social groups and, in terms of their you know, overall state of well-being, how connected those two things are. And that's exactly what we're, we have some sessions that are set aside at the Iowa Best Conference this year to just Mm -hmm. allow teachers to network, to exchange numbers, to start little support groups or social groups with each other. Even if they were only to connect a couple times a year, it's such a critical piece of a person's well-being right. and their state of of happiness and purpose. You know, when they have a community of people who see them and who hear them and make them feel belong, like they have a sense of belonging.
1: Mhm. Yeah, yeah, and and, and the, you know, again, there's lots of really good things going on with Gen Z. Uh a, they're huge. They're they're the largest generation ever. They're 70 million American Gen Zers, but if we know one in 5 have had a reported serious mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Um, that's 14 million Americans. And I'd say what, it's more than one in five. That's only reported.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what's what's the definition of a serious mental health issue? I mean, there's way too much gray area. I I, I would think it's it's substantially higher. Uh, I'd say it's probably closer to 30, 30 to 40% of high school kids today uh, have had some serious mental health challenge or issue happen to them, uh, yeah. reported or not
0: it's very significant and you're right. You know, those are a lot of times are self self self-report. I mean, there's sometimes when, you know, we look at emergency room visits and, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know, diagnoses and things like that. But a lot of times those surveys are self-report and we know that a lot of people won't report that. Right. Um, okay. Let's, let's, you know, we're, we're at about 40 minutes and, um, So I kind of want to, you know, start to end us talking on like, okay, what are some things that we can maybe think through and talk about that could be helpful to teachers with regards to maybe if they're struggling personally or somebody in their family is struggling personally with a substance abuse um, issue or challenge, like what would maybe be some first steps and also, if you are going to school, and particularly if you're working with adolescents—not small children—but even sometimes small children, you know, that there's substance abuse issues happening in the home. I mean, I was an elementary school teacher, and can think of children who I knew were being severely impacted by substance abuse challenges that were happening within the home. If you're a teacher and you're showing up, and you're, you know, suspicious of some substance abuse mm-hmm. challenges that a student is 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 you know trying to navigate you know what are some things we could tell educators that could maybe help them get started in doing this
1: well one it's not a moral failing um it's not uh it, it, i think i think there's a uh a challenge that we have in front of us to have these conversations and not have the person that we're talking to feel like they're being implicated
2: mm-hmm. like
1: judged or talked down to and i tell you what there's a lot of people out there that it's all rah, rah, you know, toughen up, you know uh, you know, just you, you're stronger than this. It's like, you know, what's this, this is that the, this you're referring to is that you're human. So yeah. you're stronger than being human. No, I, I think, I think, I think there's a new way, a new fresh way we can look at this. And for an educator, I would say, a listen, really listen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's talk more. listen, Have resources before you start school on a piece of paper by your desk, suicide resources, local resources. Um, you know, put me down, heck on every area, Jeff Johnston, Mm
2: -hmm. just
1: email me. Hey, Jeff, I had a conversation. I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I have contacts. You have contacts, all these, we're all in this together. Um, I would say, listen, don't judge, have empathy, not sympathy. There's a massive difference between the psychological impact on the receiver. Um, you know whether you're providing sympathy. You know, oh, you'll get over it. Oh, time heals all wounds. Yes. I, I never wanted to hear that. Yeah. Empathy is, Jeff. What can I do to help promote what you're doing? That's that, that's empathy. And with kids, I have found in our research and and where I think we're, we're really aiming to. Focus on especially with purpose because purpose is a big thing. If you can find purpose, all these other things kind of kind of yeah. fall into place. I think in this, I was asked this the other day. I was in Omaha making a presentation, and someone in the audience say, "Well, how do you put purpose in a in a ch- in not a child but an adolescent, of mm. fourteen to twenty five year old?" And I got to thinking. I thought, "Well, what gives me purpose? Well, why would I be any different? You know, what gives me purpose is being in service mm. of others." Mm-hmm. That that's gives me purpose. When I, when I get that text, I get that email. I, I, maybe it's not even somebody directly notifying me that I did something worthwhile, but I get that feeling, that altruistic feeling that you can't really describe to somebody. You just feel good. Yeah. You, know? you know, giving a homeless person $5. I, so he spends it on drugs or alcohol. I don't care. It makes me feel good doing that. You know, and the kids don't have that feel good right now because everything's don't do this. Don't do that. Study for college, blah, 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 blah. And kids have this inor- and then their girlfriend breaks up with them. Maybe their, their testing goes well and things just start crumbling. And if they find purpose, they can always go to purpose. So and how do you do that? Well, maybe there's a humane society in town. Maybe there's a homeless shelter. Maybe there's a uh, a fair you can get a table at or volunteer to hand out. fly. I mean, anything anything is better than nothing. Yeah. I think there's something in that.
0: I think that's huge in finding this Gen Z group. I mean, we both have kids who fall in this yeah. Gen Z group and My
1: youngest is now 20, so.
0: Yeah. My yeah, my oldest is 22, my youngest okay. is 18. Okay. And, um and the purpose thing has has been what basically when we've had challenges and like every family, we have had our challenges too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and yeah. this purpose thing is just a really big topic um, and a concern that I've had. And that I know my girlfriends who have kids at our kids age, um, Jeff, just, <clears throat> trying to find get get them in different situations to feel like they really have a contribution that they have a purpose that they're passionate about this or that or the right. other and it's been really really hard it's been even as much as as you yeah. know or I know yep. about things right I feel like I we finally are getting there but I do think also telling your your kiddo and educators telling you know I've heard educators, and parents say to kids like, what's wrong with you? Like, don't you care about anything? Yeah. You know what? They might not right now.
1: That's the worst. Yeah. You, you know that. Yep. But it's, like, it's,
0: Don't make them feel like there's something wrong with them because they haven't found that thing yet. Like, we'll keep trying together. I,
1: I kept, I kept thinking, how do I answer the question? You know, Jeff, how, how did, how does a teen find, how does a team find purpose? How do you, how do you, I kept thinking and thinking, I thought to myself, well, first of all, I, Many times, purpose finds you. Oh, yes. Uh, You you don't find purpose. And if you're looking for something, probably won't work. Um, You know, I remember the night I met my wife. You know, I just come out of a relationship. And the last thing I wanted to do that night when we went out with my friends was to, you know, find somebody to start a relationship with. So I was not looking for Mm -hmm. it at all. And she just walked into the room. And I just knew when I saw her, you know, so, and, and now, you know, now when you're out looking, it's never there. And I think purpose can work the same way. And so what I did is I took my quote that I use purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. That's our, that's my unique life statement. That's, that's what that my marching orders are. It's all over my house. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And I started thinking, how could I take that sentence and how could I make it impactful for kids? Well, Let's let's play it backwards. So, this is my secret how to get kids to find purpose. So, I'm talking to a group of high school kids the other day, and I said, you want to find your purpose. If it hasn't found you yet, mine found me through death. Here's how you find it. Find so take that sentence, write it out. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Just go backwards. Find something personal. Okay. Grandpa died of Alzheimer's. Mm. your mom has breast cancer uh your cousin died by a drunk driver you know uh, you just go on suicide overdose fentanyl whatever that's personal that becomes a passion yeah from there you find your purpose Mm -hmm. so it's beautiful it's it's it, it, it just works perfect it flows one way great and then when you play it back so i tell kids right now be in service find something personal be in service, find something personal. And what kid at 15 doesn't have something personal that they can't subscribe to? Maybe it's just mentorship. Maybe it's, maybe it's you were dyslexic your whole life. And now you've learned that now you've conquered that. And you want to talk to kids about how that can be an asset, not a curse. Like attention deficit can be something helpful. Not, not, a, not a freaking disorder that we got to stop telling kids. There's one thing that's going to kill me. It's, Hearing professionals use the word disorder at the end of attention deficit. That's fine amongst yourselves, but we're around young, impressionable minds. Words matter. We're telling kids these are disorders. Stop. Even if they are, I don't care. They don't have to know. So again, going back to that purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. Find something personal. It'll become a passion. And from then, your purpose shows up. And that's... That's resonated well. I hear kids in these workshops really leaning in, taking notes. I don't know if it works, well, but it's got them thinking.
0: It does, and it's and it does make sense, and it's a really beautiful way to start. And and you're right. If it's not personal, you're you're not going to be passionate about it. You're not nope. going to stick with it. No, nope. and it and it aligns with research. Like if you, you know, if you think of Atomic Habits, um, yeah.
1: I've read it twice.
0: Yeah. Like that's, that's basically what he's saying. It has to become part of your identity or the behavior isn't going to change.
1: I get people say, well, Jeff, how, how can you do this all the time? Don't you ever get burned out? I'm like, no, I don't. I worry about me. Sometimes my kids are all constantly saying, dad, you need to get out of the house more. You need to go out and do things more. I'm fair. I'm fairly reclusive. Um, Which that part of me, I don't enjoy, but the fact that I'm not, you know, being pulled in so many different directions allows me to focus on what I really like to do. And that's help kids. Um, you know, and so, uh, there's a fine dance with all this, you know, as, as an advocate, as are you, as are all the teachers listening, watching later, whatever. Um, you can't be of service to other people. If your train is going this way, right. Towards that cliff like I watched my wife and my son, you can't be of service to anybody if yourself is um, a mess. And so the very first thing you can do to help your kids at school is help yourself first. If you're drinking five days a week, go down to four. That's a win. You don't have to go to zero. You know, if you're 40, 50 pounds overweight, lose five. That's good. If you're sleeping five hours a, a night, sleep five and a half, you know, I mean just baby steps. Like we tell our kids, why, why would adults be any different?
0: It's true. And that that was going to be my big piece of advice. So we're on the same page. Yeah. You have to get your own personal mm-hmm. body, mind, emotions, you ha- your environment in order. It's It's you're never going to be able to really show up for your students, for your family, until okay. you are taking care of you.
1: And don't you think kids can see that?
0: Oh, I mean, I mean, so
1: so so Carrie. If you and I are talking, I can see within, and I I know you fairly well now because we've had a number of conversations. But I could see very quickly on somebody now that I know Mm -hmm. that they're not really into this conversation, right? Yes, right. So kids can sense it, and that just adds more angst. Why is my teacher stressed? Why are my parents stressed? Why is my coach? It's like we want to fix the kids. We got to fix ourselves first, and then we can go save the world. But if we're all our generation's a disaster. Toxic relationships and substance abuse and and poor diets. How in the hell do we think we're going to help the kids?
0: We're not. You. You are not. I mean, right. I do. I do always have to say this. You know, having been a classroom teacher for and even doing work in schools now still. You know, I also recognize teachers. Those of you who will who are listening to this, like I see you, I hear you, I'm in school environments, and I know how difficult some of these systems are are that you're trying to work in. And it's so
1: so unsupporting to the teachers. Yeah. My heart goes out to them.
0: I want you to know that like both Jeff and I are not trying to gaslight you. No, no, no. We feel it. And we want you to know that like at certain, at a certain point in time, because I've worked in healthy systems too. And I know Jeff, you probably have too, Mm -hmm you have to put yourself first and you have to say the system is, I, ca- I cannot take care of myself. I cannot take care of my family. I cannot show up for students in this particular system and I have to look for a different job. And it can Thank maybe you. still be teaching, yep. but maybe it's yep. just not in that school district or not in that particular school yep. if it is that toxic.
1: I, I'm so happy you said that because if you can't fix yourself for whatever reason, legitimate or self-created, then fix your environment.
0: Yep. You have to,
1: I mean, you can do that. You know, you can fix any environment. If you're not in a good marriage, get divorced. You, you can, okay. if you can't change things to fix your marriage, then, then get divorced. So it's like, you can always change your environment. It's very difficult to change yourself. I get that. And I'm not gaslighting either. My heart goes out to teachers. Wow. I want to find, this is why our bright app is so passionate for me. I want to find a way. So as do you to put in the hands of the teachers and the students, a tool, to help with these problems. It may, it may not solve the problem. It may not help everybody, but it certainly isn't going to make things worse. And, uh, you know, education's great. I'm all for it, but we need action. We, we need to start. We can't wait for the government to come in to give us more money to do things. We can't wait for, we've got to start doing things. A ourselves, our family unit, our neighborhood, our community, our schools, our state, our country, and then the world. And it has to be in that order. You know, and again, my heart goes out to teachers. I think this is probably the hardest time in the history of humanity being education because it's the hardest time in the history of humanity to be a teenager.
0: Oh, by hands yeah. down, hands down. It is very, very complicated and difficult and technology has brought lots of complication to this. Our laws, policies, lack of of social services, it, it, it is it it's a lot. It is mm-hmm. a lot to take in. It's a lot to live through and to try to navigate, especially when you're a young adult and um, you're just starting to try to make your way in this world. It feels very overwhelming.
1: But I will tell you though, and I, I, I think you feel the same way. I've never been more excited for Gen Z mental health right now. I've never been more excited with artificial intelligence, chat, GDP, all the things you hear negative about it. These can become our great allies in these systems, Oh yeah, um, you know, and I think if kids if kids like I said they sense they they can see angst in adults. So if we can come to them saying, "Man, today's Wednesday. This is my favorite day of the week. Why? Because I'm alive. Every day I'm alive is my favorite day of the week." It's like and kids I remember in high school the coaches and the teachers that were the most positive were the ones I gravitated to.
0: Oh of course, all the time.
1: Right. So if we have a system where all the teachers there are frustrated and they're mad and they're upset about the lack of support and I get it, I I would be, I would be that teacher. I know I would be, cause I'm too competitive. I would be very frustrated with the lack of support I was getting. Um, it's like, how can we get more teachers, even if they got to just fake it a little bit, you know, just to be, just be more engaged and more happy and more, more excited because that, that is so important in the confidence in the self-worth for kids if they can see adults and then they aspire to be that person. How many kids want to be a teacher or a coach if their coach is just down all the time and yelling at people? I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be a coach.
0: Well yeah that's why I,
1: kids aren't going into politics today. Most most kids don't want to do that because it's just so toxic.
0: It's so true. I have to do a quick shout out right now to a teacher at City Hi AJ Layman and I don't know if he'll ever listen to this, but he is a teacher. Then you were when you were talking. His his name came to mind right away. He gets he gets criticized sometimes. I know because he is like the favorite, right? <laughs> and yep. you know, I think some people think that he doesn't necessarily hold kids accountable, whatever that might. Be. Yeah,
1: whatever that means.
0: <laughs> um, but I will tell you one thing that he does do. He makes everybody feel loved. Yeah. He makes everybody feel like they belong, even the kids that like just hate. School. yeah they go to his class yeah you know and that's what we need we want you give our him a reason to to school we want our kids you know I, he, we we we're having' Well, there'll be kids who won't go to any other class but his yeah that's a start
1: the heck of a start <laughs> and you know what we're not gonna change I, I used to say when I was in the investment business um I don't do that anymore obviously uh that to change behavior there's two ways to change behavior and you know, this scare
2: <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: or hope. So are we going to scare our way out of this problem? You want to just go yell at kids? Hey, you're going to die of fentanyl. Hey, you're going to go to prison. Hey, you're going to lose your, you're going to get, you know, do we want to just scare kids? Don't do drugs. Don't do this. Don't. Or do we want to say, you know what? There's a lot of love and hope and inspiration on, in this world. There's more good things going on than bad but you're in a situation right now where you're just seeing the bad, but the good is all around you. You're just not letting it in. Your heart isn't open. You got to let it in. Mm-hmm. But that comes from the teachers sharing that confidence with their kids. Yeah. Uh, and if teachers aren't in a good place, it, it just, it makes it really tough. So as much as I'm trying to help Gen Z, I'm honored to be on this show because the focus is on um, the environment that teachers are in. Yeah. Uh, and it's a combination yeah. of the teacher's, the students, the support they can get. uh, And um, we know there's a problem. We know the demand is there. It's like, what are we going to do about it? It's going back to that action. It's like, what are we doing that's actionable? You know, Um, but I'm very optimistic. I'm very confident that there's good people in charge of all these things. They're coming up with some really neat ideas that there's, there's four fronts of mental health out there. The, the kind of the, the alternative space is out there. Lots of research going, lots of money going into it. I think it's great. And we have a generation that Carrie wants help. And that's how you can't help people who don't want to get helped. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. Like, that's, like, that's like recovery 101, recovery 101. You're an enabler or you're a helper, but you can't help people that don't want to get helped. Yeah. Okay, there you go. That generation, their heart is open. majority of them want help. Yeah. All right parents, let's build it. They will come, let's build it.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: what you're doing. That's what the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health is doing. That's what that's what Same. we're doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and we both know that those of us who are in this and who do this work, you we can't do it alone. Like we mm-hmm. all have to be partnering and networking with each other like you said earlier, you know, exchanging Exchanging phone numbers, exchanging yeah. contacts, creating systems uh, and, yep. and networks that are gonna be that are, are gonna be stronger and bigger and broader to support the need because there is such a huge need. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I really I always appreciate my time with you. I it always feels like we've had like a three minute conversation. <laughs> I'll look down and be like, oh, we've been chatting for an hour. <laughs> <minutes."> <laughs> yep. Yeah. So all right. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Welcome, Drew, to the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health uh, Educator Wellness Podcast. We are so happy to have you with us today.
3: Well, thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be here today.
0: Yeah, so today we are going to talk about substance abuse, and we're going to talk about substance abuse in our communities. Like, how did you get in, how did you get to where you are right now in your career path?
3: Well, um, I, I, I don't know entirely how I ended up where I am. <laughs> um, Even though it's a little bit easier to connect the dots looking backwards, uh, uh, graduated high school, went right into the military, um, was forward deployed for most of of my four years of service, came back to Iowa, uh, tend to yo-yo back to Iowa somehow, um, and uh, didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, Went to uh, college, had the GI Bill, uh, got my undergrad at Iowa, then went on to get my uh, master's in social work at Iowa. Um, again, not not really clear on a path forward. Um, came out of there, did some um, some substance uh, use work uh, initially, kind of early on in my career, kind of uh, substance abuse evaluations, and uh, led a couple groups related to substance use um, for a short period of time, like the three two one J course that the Department of Correctional Services has, mm. working with individuals who uh, had uh, three or more OWI convictions um, and, uh, as well as doing some dual diagnosis work, uh, through, a uh, a colleague, I was connected with the work of foundation two. I had been looking at something a little bit, um, different and, uh, and kind of the rest is history. So I've been at foundation two for just about 10 years now where, um, I've been involved in, um, all arrays of crisis intervention programming from more traditional overseeing the crisis line to, uh, developing co-responder programs on the, on the Really, my passion has been in suicide prevention, suicide intervention, uh, which which is really uh, kind of uh, defined my career up to this point.
0: Yeah. Okay. So thinking about your work in substance use, substance abuse, do you it, what, What made you really, um, I mean, you, you said that actually that a lot of your work now is around um, suicide prevention, intervention, maybe even some postvention, but what, what about substance use? And so did you just kind of fall into that work or did you really see like the prevalence in a, in a certain community that you were in within your family, within a school, within the military? What drew you to that?
3: Well, to be quite honest, I've always been interested in kind of the, the, the when it comes to substance use, and, and I'll even throw suicide into, well, it's, it's categorized under deaths of despair, as mm-hmm. is substance use. And um, a question that has always bounced around in my brain is um, not why people use substances. People, you, you know, people yeah. use substances because they want to feel better in most cases, but why we have such prevalence in our society as a whole. What is it about our society? that seems to drive people to substances in order to just feel good or in some in, in many cases just feel normal and so that has always been an interest of mine and mm-hmm. it overlaps with suicide a lot in that uh, substances are are almost always present um, at the moment of suicide uh, especially alcohol mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of overlap with the work I do now I've been involved in in several suicides and uh, the vast majority uh, there has been substance use present at the time of suicide. Um, but from a, again, from a top-down perspective, um, throughout my career, I've been <clears throat> interested in suffering, why people suffer, how people suffer, but how societies suffer. And uh, again, the question of um, not why does an individual use substances, mm-hmm. but why, why in our society today do we have such high prevalence of substance use? And why do people feel, feel that is one of the few ways that they can feel good or feel normal?
0: Okay, so let's unpack that a little bit more. What is the prevalence rate?
3: Well, uh, I believe in any given year, you know, we're talking with adult populations, uh, somewhere around 40 to 50% of adults are using substances in in any given year. Obviously, alcohol use is quite high, but uh, marijuana use uh, since um, legalization has skyrocketed on a state-by-state basis uh, in terms of adults that previously weren't using it. Um, and, uh, I think anybody listening to this, whether a provider or a parent, um, understands the new complexities of, mm-hmm. uh, of marijuana use or cannabis use. Yeah. Um, and then in youth populations in particular, uh, I was looking at some data here this morning from like the youth, uh, youth behavior survey. Um, it looks like substance use, In teen populations, just like with a lot of uh, syndromes, mental health syndromes and conditions, um, the rates are higher the older uh, youth get, but uh, seem to have uh, doubled to tripled uh, since uh, 2016 in the data that Mm. I was looking at going up through 2020. And so what does that look like, doubled or tripled? We're talking about in any given year, um, 12 to 16% uh, of students reporting that in the last year, essentially they used, uh, used, uh, illicit substances, uh, primarily not, not talking specifically about alcohol.
0: Okay. So when you said 40 to 50% of adults, is that abuse or is that just like, including like casual use?
3: Casual use reporting, okay. uh, and, and that is adults, it, it, I guess, in probably, you know, population size studies, uh, admitting mm-hmm. to using substances, illicit substances. Okay.
0: Wow. So did that break it down to like how frequently people were using, like in terms of, you know, three to five times a week, once a week?
3: Uh, I didn't I I didn't look at that with adults. I did look at that with youth because that's one of the questions on the Mm. youth behavior survey I was looking at. um, And uh, essentially they ask uh, in the last month. And again, rates were pretty similar in the last month somewhere between 10 and 16 percent of youth reporting uh, okay. substance use in the, in the previous month.
0: Wow. and do you, do you remember the age bracket? so is it like 13 to 21 or 13 to 19?
3: Uh, this was looking at high school high school okay. students and I think it was it, it was broken down. Uh, the I think the uh, I'll have to I'll have to look again, but I think the it breaks it down by age group. And they actually, it's it, the the, the uh, CDC does this every two years and it might not be mm-hmm. the CDC. And I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, the the behavior survey they carry out among yeah. high school mm-hmm. and middle-aged, middle age students. And they ask a whole host of questions around um, uh, maladaptive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so you, you get it broken down by, um, age group and trends, and it's it's a pretty robust study. I believe all high school students in the United States uh, do it.
0: Yeah, they're presented with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then then the other portion of that too, of course, is it's it's self-report. So then yeah. you have to wonder like how many students are not actually completing it or n- not willing to like really tell their their true story in it.
3: Yeah, um, I mean, it's a great and it's the same with adults, right? There's mm-hmm. tremendous stigma around substance use. Um, I will say there's uh, a, kind of an interesting maybe side road is there's stigma within the substance use community between substances as well. Oh, sure. And so, um, you know, certain substances, uh, methamphetamine are, are, are even stigmatized within the community. And so uh, it, it becomes harder and harder uh, to, uh, to get people to discuss their substance use, understandably, uh, depending on the substance and, and the context.
0: So, so there's something else that you said when you first started talking and it was, so I, you know, you were talking about how you were mostly interested or really interested in figuring out and learning what about our society pushes people to use substances to escape the reality or to feel normal or to alter their feelings or mindset in, in some way, shape or form, right? So, you know, I know that there's not one particular right answer to this, but in all of your work that you've done, where are you at with this right now? Like what, what, if you had to give an answer to us today, what would that answer be? What are your Uh, thoughts?
3: I, I would say strictly speaking around, um, again, deaths of despair, which we lump substance, substance overdose and suicides into deaths of despair. I would say mostly societal and environmental, um, stressors, uh, certainly mental health conditions play a role but uh, uh, sub- the, the truth is substance use rates and suicide rates are not uh, equal across, uh, across different societies. And so uh, say the United States and Japan have different rates and uh, over my career, uh, increasingly uh, policy decisions, societal expectations, lack of safety net and social uh, social polity- policies. And then uh, of course, substance use, uh, uh, is not equal across uh, uh, socioeconomic status. And so uh, we tend to see higher rates among lower socioeconomic status individuals. um, And uh, it it makes a lot of sense why. Uh, Mm -hmm. We could could dig into that probably all day long. But Mm -hmm. I have increasingly leaned towards um, cultural and societal uh, or environmental drivers as much as as, uh, internal drivers.
0: Sure. Okay, so if we're starting to think about our school communities and the health of our teachers and the health of our students and our schools and, you know, one thing – so I do a lot of wellness work in schools and I go in and we talk about the dimensions of wellness and building, you know, positive and healthy habits in our daily lives and, and one thing that's happened in the last few years since we've been able to be back in schools in the last couple of years it, that has never happened to me before in all the PD that I've done in schools in the last you know 20 plus years in this career is I'm having more and more educators like pull me off to the side during breaks or at the end of our sessions. And almost um in and I've not, not a priest by any means, but it almost it feels like in almost some kind of like confessional way. Telling me about their use with alcohol and how, um, and weed and how, you know, they know that, um, things are getting so bad with their, you know, professional lives and their personal lives. And they're really leaning on that. And they want some advice on, you know, how they can basically taper or reduce their use of substances in their daily lives, um, and, and make healthier choices for themselves, lean into something else. First of all, are you seeing more and more of this with their clients or people that you're working with? And then what are, what's some pieces of advice that you're giving them?
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Um, and uh, you mentioned alcohol and weed. Um, weed is, again, I can, I can, from a provider standpoint, has increasingly become a extremely complicated topic mm-hmm. um, because of widespread legalization but also because of really complicated mixed messaging around weed use with adults. Um, for instance, one thing I've seen a significant rise in, um, in, in my work is adults using weed for sleep. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, it's probably the most common uh, reason that I get reported to me. Uh, the, the research on it, uh, seems to be in line with alcohol use for sleep. Uh, it might increase, uh, quantity, but not quality of sleep, it might interfere. But, but having these conversations with clients or having these conversations as a society, we haven't done ourselves any favors in that for, I would say, uh, from the 30s up until the early 2000s, there was a lot of um, complicated messaging around marijuana that wasn't exactly honest. Um, and that has undermined in a lot of ways, I believe, Uh, the ability of professionals to really have candid conversations around substance use. In addition to that, one of the things that we have to be aware of, especially with teens is they can fact check us pretty quickly.
0: Mm -hmm. And so if
3: we're giving them information that isn't correct or is um, complicated or debated in the, within the field itself, they'll walk out to the, if I'm doing therapy, they'll go out to their car in the parking lot and look it up and fact check me. And so messaging has become extremely complicated around it. Um, and uh, it, it has made it harder for uh, uh, professionals and providers to have those conversations. Uh, again, I see a lot of people using marijuana in particular for uh, chronic pain, uh, sleep. Uh, I mentioned sleep already, um, uh, m- medicating uh, mental health issues, which is, uh, of course, goes back uh, quite a ways, but uh, uh, particularly now in, in lieu of uh, kind of societal movements against Uh, 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 pharmaceutical companies. Mm. Uh, So there's just a whole lot of complicated factors that seem to make it easier for one to rationalize personal use of these substances uh, instead of um, maybe seeing a psychiatrist and pursuing other avenues of uh, psychotropic support um, or uh, and whatnot. Um, you, You know, when it comes to to substance use in general, I think the first question for an individual is is why they're using it. Why? And, yeah, what is the purpose of using it? You know, what does it do for them? Uh, almost from kind of a strictly behaviorist standpoint, and that really opens up the door for intervention if the person is is interested in inter- intervention and um, identifies that that's a value of theirs and a goal
0: of theirs. Mm-hmm. What does it do? What does, what does the use of weed or, you know, long, long-term use of, of marijuana and or um, alcohol do to the brains and bodies of, let's say, a developing child or adolescent?
3: Yeah, and I think that's really where a lot of the more recent research has focused is on understanding the impact of marijuana on developing uh, develop, developing brains. Um, which I would say go all the way up through uh, mid twenties, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly not ending at eighteen. Um, although if I had to, if I had to beg uh, a, a youth or a kiddo not to use, I would at the very least beg them to put off usage until their twenties, um, if they were willing to negotiate or mediate on that, on that condition. Um, the, this is where it gets complicated. Is uh, even looking at the research, the effects of THC on the brain are complicated and not entirely well understood. That said, it, it, it interacts with the uh, cannabinoid system. Um, and it makes sense. At the very least, we should agree that when you introduce substances into the brain, regardless of what those substances are, they're going to likely uh, uh, modify uh, internal processes that the brain is already doing. And uh, THC use in general seems to do that, whereas the brain uh, becomes reliant on um the thc connecting to the cannabinoid system and this is getting into an area that's for people way smarter than me but um when that is discontinued um well tolerance builds with weed use just like it does with alcohol use mm-hmm, and so you yeah. have to use more and more in addition marijuana being produced today this is this is pretty well established is much more potent than um what it was um you know even 20 years ago and so we have youth putting much more powerful amounts of weed into their into their into their body through um, various means, right? So we have smoking, vaping, edibles, and even now, um, although it's a little side category, we have like uh, oils and skin lotions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so the variety out there uh, presents its own challenges. But first and foremost, smoking and vaping, um, uh, which has kind of the the most research behind it um, absolutely impacts brain chemistry, brain development, but also, um, you're, you're putting things into your lungs as well, yeah. um, that, uh, that we don't want in, in youth now, in terms of what, what impact does it seem to have? Well, it seems to, I mentioned, um, a, a little bit earlier that a lot of people, uh, there seems to be a large amount of people using marijuana for sleep disturbances. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, again, it seems to interfere with sleep quality, similar to alcohol and that, uh, Melatonin production, and so what you'll hear a lot from people who use marijuana, just like with alcohol, is they'll fall asleep quicker, but they won't feel as rested the next day. Um, In youth, uh, we see irritability, Um, we see uh, uh, behavioral uh, behavioral issues. Uh, Seems to potentially, I say seems a lot because the research isn't clear. Increase uh, anxiety and depressive symptoms in teens, Um, although again the mechanisms aren't clear. And then for for at least two decades now, there has been research um, looking at uh, marijuana use in in youth and the development of um, uh, of uh, psychotic disorders, specifically schizophrenia, later in life. Yeah. But again, the the pathways of this are not entirely clear in a way that is easy to articulate to a client in front of you, and that's where it gets really complicated um, and hard. But but there does seems to be there does seem to be correlation if not causation in a lot of those areas.
0: So one thing that I'm thinking of too when you're talking about like the impacts that substances have on you know the brains and bodies of youth and even adults is you know, really when we think about like emotional regulation, when we think about responsible decision-making, when we think about self-awareness and social awareness and like these skills for learning or life skills that all humans need to have and fine-tune throughout their lives in order to have a healthy, productive life, to to keep a job, to advance in their career, to learn what they need to learn in schools, to be able to build healthy connections with people. You know, when you're constantly depending on a substance to get through tough and uncomfortable moments you're you're not you're cheating yourself opportunities to learn those skills in those moments like emotional regulation and responsible decision making and relationship skill building, you're you're robbing yourself of opportunities to keep building those skills and fine-tuning those skills and letting those skills mature because you're just numbing numbing them, you're numbing them, you're numbing them, you're numbing them. So even if we don't know, even if the research says like there's some, there's some contradictions or we're still unclear, we haven't gathered enough data. We, you know, what, whatever that might be, we do know, right, that, like, if you don't have opportunities to build those skills in the moment that you're having those uncomfortable feelings, you know, in your own state of mind and being, that those skills don't get developed. You know, yeah, I,
3: think that, I think that's a great point. I think in the, the school of acceptance and commitment therapy, um, they would frame it as um, workability, in terms of coping mm-hmm. mechanisms. And so the way they present that is they say, well, how workable of a solution is this? And if substance use, as you, as you mentioned, is, becomes the um, <clears throat> coping mechanism of an individual, whether they're a youth, youth or an adult, um, whether that alcohol is probably the most common, You know, when I feel stressed, I drink beer, it makes me feel not as stressed. Well, how workable of a solution is that as you make your way through life? Is that a workable solution in, in the majority of scenarios you find yourself? And the answer is of course not. Right. Um, it's, it, and, and, and the other part of the workability solution is what does it cost you? And so, um, the one thing I'll say with substances, and, and you're kind of hitting on this is, um, they often, they also take away from being present and they take away from being present yeah. in experiences that can be important to us. Uh, you know, there are times in our life where we don't want to be present. Uh, this is, this would be the conversation I'd have with my kiddos, And that's okay. But there's many situations in life where we want to be present or we need to be present. And if we are using substances, we're almost certainly not as present as we could be uh, to that experience and to that situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, too, you know, like really trying to have these conversations with our kids that emphasize what you just said to, you know, what you're saying to your kids is, listen, it's completely normal to not want to be present in certain situations like that is going to happen. I mean, it happens to me on a daily basis. (laughs) But it it is, it's going to happen. But then like, how are you going to, in a healthy way, work through those those situations? And and the more that people do this, like get, work through uncomfortable situations, first of all, they, they become less uncomfortable, right? We right. also we increase confidence in knowing that we can do hard things. Yeah. It's okay.
3: I, I also think too, I mean, it's fair to say, you know, in a lot of the, and this goes back to, I think the complication of substance use is that, you know, frequently with, when you talk with individuals who use substances as a coping mechanism, and again, this is anecdotal, um, but, uh, uh, you know, what you'll hear is it's, it, it works in the short term, but there are costs in the long term. And for whatever reason, we could get into it, I guess, from a, we could bring an anthropologist in here and, and talk about kind of the evolution of, of, of humans, um, but um, we're pretty good at short-term fixes for unwanted experiences. And we're pretty bad at um, long term fixes for unwanted experiences. And when I talk about unwanted experiences, I'm talking about uh, pain, internal depression, and anxiety, mm-hmm. and, and the reasons that people tend to self medicate on substances. Um, you know, when you work with clients or individuals that have used substances um, to, to soften unwanted experiences, a lot of the times they'll say, um, when you ask them about the cost, it takes away from these other areas of my life, again, going back to being present in terms of um, in, enjoying the evenings, being there with my family, being able to go for walks. Um, it, it just has a lot of, of, of long-term consequences anytime we rely on a substance, uh, again, as a, as a primary coping skill mm-hmm. um, or to self-medicate ourselves.
0: It is true. I mean, I'm really, you know, I'm not a, I'm not sober in terms of like, I never, ever drink, but um, compared to how much I drank even, you know, three, four years ago, I'm about as close to sober as a person could possibly get. You know, I I I rarely have alcohol in my life. When I say that, I mean like five or six times a year. And, but I tell you what, um, it is so part, it is so, it's such, it, you don't even realize it actually until you become sober or I, I, at least I didn't, I mean, I knew it was a big part of, of our society and our lives uh, globally actually. Right. But when you start to stop drinking and you're out in social situations, or you go to dinner parties or even, even work parties sometimes in, in get togethers, you, it's, it is so interesting to me how people react when I'm like, Oh, I really don't drink. Or even dating too. Like it's a no-go for some people. Like if you're not, if you're not gonna drink, if you're not gonna have alcohol with them in the evening, then they're like, Well, I I can't, I can't date you. Isn't it I mean, I just can't when you stop to think about it that way, like how prevalent it is and how how what a big role it plays in our social lives, it's like no wonder, right? No wonder we go to this because it's just so accepted and almost yeah. like encouraged.
3: It, well, it is encouraged. I, I agree with that. And then to put yourself in, in, in not that you, in, in you're a human. So you've been in the place of a, a youth or a minor who doesn't really even have the tools an adult has to assert their self or their needs um, to the degree that, you know, a, a 30 or 40 or, or 50 year old or whatever um, has. And so um, youth are facing... Wait, were
0: you age. guessing my age there?
3: No, no, I was not guessing your age at all. A, a 20 Do you think old, I'm 50? A, a 20 year old... <laughs> uh, I'm <chasing> um, <laughs> But if you take a sixteen or seventeen year old, um, they don't even have those tools, and so the peer pressure is tremendous. And again, with uh, with the with the complicated legalization status of marijuana, <clears throat> those conversations even among peers are um, very difficult to have because there's misinformation, quasi true information, and true information all out there intermingled. Um, uh, among each other on on the risk factors uh, for substance use, and so um, it, it's hard as an adult to not use substances. It's extra hard as a as a youth.
0: Yeah, it's hard for adults to talk to kids about it. I mean, you and you just said that. I'm repeating what you just said. I'm not, you know, you you said it first, but but you know, I've tried. You know, we've had we have substance abuse issues in my own family, extended and immediate family, and. Um, when I've tried to have conversations with my own children and with some of their friends, it's exactly what you just said. They will Google and Google and Google, and often oftentimes find things that they really want to hear. Of course, that's human nature. We all do this. It's confirmation bias, but. It, it is really difficult right now to have the conversation with them about the dangers and how it really does and you know impact your your brains and your bodies long term, and I think that's like the difficulty that teachers are having too, right? Like if they even bring it up in in schools and, and in their classrooms, they are feeling kind of like this pushback as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, <clears throat> I think it's 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 very challenging to have that conversation, especially as a parent or a therapist. And in addition to that, you, you, you know, I'm always thinking I want to have the conversation in a way that in a, in a way that if my kids do use substances, they'll still talk to me about that substance mm. use. And so uh, lectures don't really work. If lectures worked, we wouldn't need therapists. We wouldn't need um, substance use counselors. We we wouldn't need any of that. We wouldn't need prisons or jails. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do you, as a parent, how do you, as a provider, um, you know, providers are in the same, in the, in the same kind of group a lot of the times in that if we have a teen client in front of us, we want them to understand the risk, but we also want them to be open with us about communicating what they're doing. So we can't we can't blow through rapport with them. How do you have the conversation in a way that is um, productive, but not further stigmatizing it and also not scaring your 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 child out of having further communication with you a, a, around it. Um, you know, personally I would rather if my kids are using it, they talk to me about it rather than they hide it from me. And so I need to keep that door open.
0: I, I, I run a stop. I mean, I'd like to emphasize what you just said. And I, you know, unfortunately, so my children are 22 and 18 and I have, I mean, I, I always say to people at this point in time in my parenting, my my journey as a parent, you could tell me anything, and I would not be surprised. <laughs> I mean, I've I've but between the two of them and all of their friends that hang out at my house, I have heard it all, I have seen it all, I swear to you, <laughs> I've experienced it all. And you know, when I was a younger parent, and they were starting to experiment and do things that I was finding out about. You know that was a really big mistake that I made, Drew. Really big, and I, I think it made it even worse. I did this thing. Looking back now, that of course I'm I'm ashamed of, and I totally regret. But you know, I did this punitive. I went this punitive route. I, you know, knowing knowing now what I know about what was going on, I was using shame shaming tactics, and I mean, super unhealthy and super unproductive. Luckily, I had enough of a relationship, good relationship with one of my children that I'm talking about that he still would talk to me about it and mostly be honest. Not all the time. Trust me. (laughs) But um, and now we still talk about it. But um, but those tactics don't work. Yeah. They, I mean, you can sit there and talk about taking things away and punishing and scaring all you want. And I am telling you, I've seen it time and my parents did it to one of my siblings. I tried it with one of my own kids. I've seen other parents do it with their kids. I'm in schools all the time. Yeah. I know a lot about behavior and punishment. It does not work.
3: Right. And and I think in addition to that, at some point, uh, uh you know, at some point in the development stage of a, of a, of a a kid, um, their friends become uh, more trusted than their parents. Mm -hmm. And so uh, not only, you know, will they tend to hide substance use, um, but uh, your uh, lecturing on them um, quickly becomes um, kind of, uh, you know, secondary to the expertise of their friends and and peers who, um, you know, we know that uh, uh, with teens in general, uh, interpersonal interactions, they're extremely sensitive to those. Um, and they play a very large role in in their lives and worlds. Um, and so uh, it, it is an extremely hard conversation to have. It's it's it, And it's harder to have today, at least in my experience, than it was even 10 years ago um, because of the proliferation of um, yeah. the marijuana out uh, in the United States.
0: So... You know, we've talked about you know like this like shaming and punishment. It doesn't work. We need to build healthy relationships. Keep yeah. in, you yeah. know keep this bilateral kind of conversation, open conversation. You know, um, going with our with our youth and even with our colleagues and our friends and family, um, in order to reduce that stigma and to you know, help get people help when they need help. What are some of the signs? Like, what are some of the signs and symptoms where things are like getting really out of control, maybe even for ourselves or that you can see in other people?
3: Well, and, and uh, y- you know, we talk about substance uh, substance use broadly in the DSM-5, which is the, uh, the handbook. I have, I have my DSM-5 right next to me, although I don't have the TR. Um, but uh, the there. handbook, yeah, yeah, right here, I just casually read, I was just reading this uh this morning um uh, just a casual
2: read yeah
3: just a casual read um, the disorders themselves actually are broken up by um by type and so you have cannabis use disorder you have alcohol use disorder um you have opioid use disorder <clears throat> and like all of the dis- all, all of the syndromes in the DSM5 and disorders in the DSM5 um there's clinical criteria but probably the the as a heuristic um most professionals fall back to well ha- has it had an impact on your life in in a social uh responsibility sort of way and so that that really is kind of the the default when it comes to substance use is um has it impacted school has it impacted ability to work has it impacted any of your social relationships or has there been legal or professional uh you know have you lost a job because of substance use uh, have you been uh suspended or expelled from school hopefully we're not doing that but uh that would be an example. And we're really looking at, um, s- signs from the person's life that substance use has, uh, crept up and caused, uh, uh mm. caused issues as they navigate the world. Um, of course, with, with, um, many substances, um, we also have physiological symptoms that can be pretty, um, pretty terrifying, uh, you know, with alcohol, um, uh, delirium tremens, uh, mm. things of that sort that also would be, uh, 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 you know, a sign of a pretty, pretty significant substance use disorder. But with, with, uh, with, with marijuana use, uh, the withdrawal is a little more subtle, but certainly if we saw withdrawal, we would suspect that it was, um, you know, the the body had become physiological, physiologically dependent on that. um, And paradoxically, um, inability to sleep is one of the withdrawal symptoms Mm. um, from, from marijuana use. Um, In addition to, uh, you, you know, one of the other kind of, uh, I would say, heuristics around uh, uh, signs and symptoms of, it, of of substance use struggles is an inability to quit, even when one wants to. And so what you'll often hear with like marijuana use is, well, I'm planning on quitting, I'm planning on quitting, I'm planning on quitting. And then, um, you know, I went two or three days, and then X happened. Um, and you can enter any number of scenarios okay. there. And so um, I, I fell back to it. Well, that's a sign that the individual is struggling to actually quit or decrease the amount. And so I would say those two are, are the first one being um, has it impacted you out in any way in your life that you could quantify, and second being have you tried to quit and have you struggled to quit?
0: Yeah, those, that's really good advice, and definitely you know for those of that of us who have experienced this in our own lives or have seen. This happening to other people close to us, then those, you know, I'm sure that you can think of specific scenarios and situations that you've experienced with them. And it's really, um, it's really scary. It's, it it's is. Scary and I even think, again. you know,
3: it, it can, even with adults, a lot of the time uh, we'll give alcohol as, as an example, a lot of adults will drink um, say wine in the evening, um, you know, uh, beyond uh, you know, the, the, the SAMHSA has recommendations around um, alcohol consumption in terms of you know I think it it, used, it was uh, seven seven standard drinks for a male, fourteen for a female was kind of a heuristic they use they used to use I don't know if they've updated that criteria, but um, you'll find you know adults that have a glass of wine or two each night, and um, when they you know maybe they identify that the alcohol use is contributing to sleep problems as alcohol use does mm-hmm. in the evening. They try to cut back and they're just not able to do it. And so maybe they just try to drink earlier in the evening and you can kind of see the cycle um, of uh, struggles around um, around discontinuing use.
0: You know, I and there's that research because I read that research a lot about like what is what is a healthy use of alcohol because you know we we were also given all kinds of information so now I am going to date myself so I'm 45 <laughs> so I don't remember. Do I suspect I'm quite a bit older than you? But I don't remember if you remember. Like particularly like in the 80s when studies were coming out that like you should drink certain a certain amount of red wine every single day and for heart health. And and then it kind of like even, you know, escalated, you know, or not. Well, yeah, it kind of did and just kept going like into the 90s. Well, since then, actually, we have figured out um, that that's that, that those studies actually were. Were false, you know. That yeah. the people that they put, and you maybe know this, but the people yeah. that yeah. put in those studies already had health conditions. The ones yeah. that were sober, if, they, that's why they were sober, is because they were they already had heart issues. They already had you know other kinds of really chronic health conditions. So that's why they were sober. So then when we compared them, when they compared them to the people who were like moderate moderate drinkers. Than those moderate drinkers, like did, you know the indicators that they were using those seem to be healthier or better. But the problem is that the the control group was actually already sick.
3: Yeah, and I, I think now the guidelines, you know, and maybe not guidelines is the wrong the wrong term. But now what you see out there is any amount of alcohol use yep. is is harmful. the 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 struggle from a provider or a provider standpoint, as you say that now, and what you get is the same thing you get um, you know, with, with a lot of things with adults as well, you know, they used to say this, and then they said this and it was healthy and mm-hmm. it's not healthy and it's healthy and it'll be healthy again. Um, or you get some, um, kind of general reference to like, well, the French have it at every dinner and look at them. There's the, you know, you get these kind of, um, mm-hmm. these kind of offhand marks, but, um, you're right in that the information around alcohol use, j- just like with marijuana use has been, um, all over the place over the, uh, the, the, the lifespan of most adults. Um, and it makes it harder to have those conversations.
0: It it does. I do have to, I have to tell you there is, so there's, um, I don't know if you listen, well, we're doing a podcast right now, but I listen to science versus a lot. I don't know if you're Mm -hmm. familiar with this podcast, but there's a science versus alcohol episode that's yeah. really good. Those of you who haven't listened to that, then I highly encourage you to do that. There's there's another one, too, and I'm trying to – I'm looking on my phone right now if you could see me. Oh, Maintenance Phase. There's another one on this podcast called Maintenance Phase, all about alcohol. And it is like the latest research oh, about – the use of alcohol and what it does to our bodies. And I like, and like, listen, you guys, I'm not saying that you should never have a sip of alcohol. Like that's not what Drew and I are telling you. (laughs) <laughs> we're just telling you that like really be critical about the research that you read and, and what, what you're getting out of those, those, those articles. And, and, you know, we all, we all, I mean, I drink way too much coffee, like nobody's perfect. Right. But we're just, you know, I'm, I guess I'm trying to highlight with Drew here that we have received a lot of misinformation about alcohol and what it does to our bodies. And and, and those are two recent, um, podcasts that you could listen to that give you some really good information about, about the use of alcohol?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's a, you know, and, and part of this reflects just the, the, the advances in science and under, in biology and understanding the mechanisms, you know, it would be strange if, if we still abided by criteria from the 1980s. Um, and yet, um, as Freud pointed out so aptly, uh, the, the, the psyche has several, rays, uh, several ways to rationalize behaviors. And uh, with substances in particular, um, pointing out the flaws in, in messaging across time and space seems to be a pretty potent way to rationalize yeah. uh, to rationalize substance use. Um, yeah. You know, to say, "Well, does anybody really know?" Because look at look at the complications um, in 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 government uh, messaging around it. And uh, you know, you can point to the uh, "Just Say No" campaign from the the 90s, which um, was you know, in, in hindsight, was bizarre and uh, a very strange approach, but um, you know, on the other hand, I think one could argue that these are advances and this is a good thing. It's mm-hmm. good that we're updating mm-hmm. criteria and we're understanding it better. And um, science is dynamic and, and substance use. The, the impact of substance use is science, is a science. And it, it is going to reflect that um, that kind of dynamic process of science.
0: Yeah. Well, Drew, I really want to tell you how much I am thankful for you and your work and um, taking the time to come on the show today and just kind of talk through um, some of the signs and symptoms of, you know, using alcohol or drugs maybe too much in our lives and what that can do um, to our bodies and to our communities. So, um, again, thank you, and I really appreciate you and your work, and I hope that we can continue connecting and, and doing this work together.
3: Um, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it was a great conversation and uh, I, I really appreciate it and hope that uh, hope that s- someone listening out there gets something from it.
0: Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Carrie. I think my biggest takeaway from my conversations with Jeff and Drew is how prevalent substance abuse is in our world, not just this country, but in our world. I think you would be really hard pressed to talk to somebody who hasn't been affected in some way by substance abuse, whether personally they have struggled with it or they have been a part of a family who's struggled with it, had a family member who has struggled with it or a friend. Um, You know, we oftentimes talk about how uh, cancer affects everybody. And I think, you know, we sometimes don't talk about how substance abuse has such a big impact um, on the health and well-being of of our children, of our adolescents, and, and the adults in this world. Um, I think that you know we have really normalized leaning into alcohol and almost think it's funny when we do this when we're struggling with difficult and uncomfortable feelings. And I feel like it's time that we start having. Really honest conversations with ourselves and with our families about the appropriate ways and the healthy ways that we can use alcohol in our lives and how we model that to our students and to our children in our homes. Some of the really big statistics that stuck out to me when I was researching doing this episode, I will share with you um, because I think it's important for us to know these things. According to the National Center for Drug Abuse Statistics, drug use among 8th graders between 2016 and 2020 increased by 61%. 61%. 62% of teenagers in 12th grade have abused alcohol. 50% of t- teenagers have misused a drug at least once. 21% of 8th graders have tried illicit drugs at least once, and 11% of overdose overdose deaths are aged 15 to 24. And then we might ask ourselves, well, okay, what's this connection or what's this relationship between mental health and substance abuse? Well, according to the Child Mind Institute, if not treated, almost Half of kids with mental health disorders will end up having a substance abuse or disorder, which of course makes it harder to treat mental illness and has a significant impact on their future. And then of course, the future of our communities. If we're not taking care of individuals and communities, it negatively impacts all of us. Um, and I think this really just Brings us back once again to this big question of how do we start to work together, to advocate together for conditions that allow us to thrive, not just survive. I invite you to share your thoughts, comments, and suggestions with me at scsmh main at uiowa.edu. I'm always happy to hear from you. You can give me your questions. You can give me suggestions. We love to hear from you. Thank you for joining me today. And until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Vogeljee Sang, forever cheering you on.